even as Anna in the temple began to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She did so because of her faith. It was faith in God who had given that to her. David had this same type of faith. He longed for the day of the Lord. As we look to Psalms today, we find David longing for God's help. We find him longing for God's help in faith. So if you would, from 1 Corinthians 11, flip over back to Psalms chapter 3. Psalm 3. The Psalms are not an ordinary book of the Bible. They're a compilation of of really songs that are that very in tone and length and in purpose. It's not like Exodus, which is a a book we've studied together recently. It's not like Exodus where there's just this neat historical timeline that it follows. The Psalms match up with a historical timeline, yes, but it's, it's not like Psalm 1 was written by a young David and Psalm 100 was written by an old David. The, the timeline doesn't fit that neatly. It's better to think of the Psalms like a hymn book where you have a collection of songs and you flip to the ones. Here in Psalm, there is order, and here in Psalm 3, we see a part of an order that we'll see together with chapter 4. Next week, we'll look at chapter 4, and you'll see some of this order. But here in chapter 3, here in Psalm 3, we see something like what is Psalm 2, a hymn in which the writer is filling the chaos in the world. If you were with us last week, we, we studied Psalm 2, and you see in Psalm 2 one of my favorite lines of the Bible. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? There's so much chaos there. And it was in the world around him. The nations were raging, but he knew God was in control. Psalm 3 is similar in that the world is messed up. You even see it again. I use the ESV and in the ESV, the title is Save Me, O God. I mean, it's like the world is messed up. You get some of his despair just there. This time, though, it's not so much like in Psalm 2, what's happening among the nations. Here in Psalm 3, it's what's happening at home. King David was known for being a man after God's own heart, but David still had some significant stumbles. If you've been in church for a while, you may know of David's experience with Bathsheba, which was not good and cost him and Israel a lot. In the aftermath of that, his son Absalom was trying to take power and did a pretty good job. It seemed like the people were behind him. He had gained a lot of power and control, so much so that David had to seek refuge. He got out of town. I mean, still at this point, he's God's anointed leader for the Israelites. But his son, his own son, had consolidated power and he grew the conspiracy to dethrone his father David into the highest circles of influence. David couldn't know who to trust, who was on his side. His counselors were joining with his son. 
And this is what the context is of Psalm 3. So look at Psalm 3 with me. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 together here as we start. Here David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. There is no salvation for him in God. One of the things we can learn from David and his experience here is that we hear lies about God. It's just human condition is that we hear lies about God. The world loves to lie about God. Here in verses 1 and 2, we're finding a miserable man. (laughs) David is miserable, and he's taking stock of a really bad situation. Many foes, many rising against him. Many are saying everything is hopeless. There's no salvation available for David. There's no need to sugarcoat. This is a bad situation. And there's some wisdom here from David to recognize his situation. But it doesn't take a very wise person to get that this is bad. Many of us with less wisdom think everything is bad. But here he's recognizing a truly terrible, miserable situation. And David has a choice to make. Is there salvation in God or are my enemies right? Who do I believe? What do I believe Here in verses 1 and 2, he already gives us a hint in his language at what he believes. He starts by calling out in verse 1 to Yahweh, O Lord. Here it's an intimate name. It's as if he's calling out to Abba, Father. It's a name of trust and faith. In this moment of misery, David turned to the Father in prayer. He says, God, I'm calling out to you. He uses a different word for God in verse 2, interestingly enough. It's, it's a less intimate, more formal word for God. It's, it's almost as if he's letting us know that his enemies don't know God like he does. It's as if he's calling out to God and saying, God, I love you and I know you and I'm intimate with you. And these who are far from you are using your name and they don't know you. He's calling out to the God who he loves and who he knows loves him. David heard lies about God, but he turned to God instead of believing the lies. What's obvious here in what those many who were rising and saying about him, what's obvious about them is not that they were doubting David. They weren't investing their time in doubting whether David was saved. They were investing their time in doubting whether God could save Can God save you, David? There's no salvation for you there. After all, we need to ground ourselves in what is true. And David did too. And what is true is that God can save whoever he wants. We find that in Joel, Acts, Romans. They all teach us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. David needed to be saved from his enemies to live according to God's purpose. The promise of salvation to us, though, is one of eternal life in Christ Jesus. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. There's a common lie in in 
I, I, humanity. You'll find this across cultures that maybe God can't save you. It's a common lie about God that someone is beyond saving. The Bible teaches us that's not true. No matter what your situation is, no matter what you've done, that God can save you. That salvation is his. But the world doesn't stop there with lies about God. What, what we see in verses 1 and 2 are the tip of an iceberg. What we see for ourselves, how we can understand even taking this and saying, what does this mean for us? Well, the world lies about God in all kinds of ways. I would argue that even unfaithful churches lie about God in a lot of ways. Where David feels attacked from the inside here, how many times do we feel attacked as well by those who lie about God and who he is, his nature, his love for us? We must turn to God and recognize that he is our great hope and that our hope in him isn't based on the opinions of man about God, but in the word of God about himself. Our hope is in God's word about himself. As his enemies rise up and gather here, as David's enemies rise up and gather, as they murmur lies about God, David rests in the protection of the Father. There is no salvation in him, uh, for him in God, but yet he says, Yes, there is. Yes, there is. But you, O Lord. But you, O Lord. Hey, something different, a shift than what the world is saying. The world is saying this, but God. But God, you know better. You do better. David didn't listen to the lies of men. Instead, he returned fire. He went on the offensive in his own mind. And we can get the idea that sometimes all of these enemies on the outside of us are pressing in on us and we just need to play defense for a while. I would say, yes, but more than that, Scripture gives us the offensive. What is, what is Scripture? It's the sword. It's what we go with to the world. It's what we attack with. We go on the offensive. But we also need to be on the offensive towards ourselves as well. One thing that we overlook many times is that we can be our own worst enemies. That we can whisper the worst lies to ourselves. And How often do we need to ground ourselves in the truth of God's word rather than falling into the lies that we tell ourselves? Honestly, most of the people around me are going to lie to me positively. <laughs> generally. That's not always true. But generally. And if you're like me, I lie to myself negatively more often. If we ground ourselves in God's word and do what we're about to see David does, if we ground ourselves in God's word, then we go on the offensive and say, no, this is who God is. No, I won't believe lies. I will only believe what is true. And we know that God is the author of truth. His word being completely true gives us what we need to know. So where the world lies about God, here in verses three and four, we see that we tell the truth about God. Here in verses 3 or 4, we're going to see that we tell the truth about God. We should respond like David here in telling the truth about God. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Every day you hear lies, and you tell yourself lies about God. But the truth is, if we look at what the lies are in verses 1 and 2, 
that, that maybe God isn't real, maybe that God is distant, that maybe God doesn't care for you, that maybe God won't help you, that maybe he can't hear you, maybe that he isn't present or that he can't save you. But yet we see in God's word, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The truth is that the Lord has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. The truth is that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That God is able, that his word will consistently lead us to who he is. And here for David, it did. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He could look back at who God is to his people and apply it to himself. But even more for David, he was able to say, God, I trust you because I remember you. I know what you've done for me. It's, it's taking that song that we sang as kids where we counted our blessings and we named them one by one and it's doing it. That here, David says, God, I've experienced you. I cried aloud in, in, in to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. He isn't distant. He isn't far away. He is real. He is present. And I know that because I've relied on him. I think about some of you who are here are young enough to not have the experience yet. You haven't been in the situations where you need to cry aloud to God and him answer you. We need to lean on God. We need to look for those moments where we lean on him rather than ourselves. And when we do, we need to give God the credit for that that we can claim him as our shield, that we can claim his glory because it wasn't us who delivered ourselves, but it was God who delivered us. If we do all the work, if we deliver ourselves, then there's no glory for God. It's, it's our glory. But here for David, God gets the glory and God is the lifter of his head. He is the one who drew him out, protected him. He was the one who cried aloud, but God answered him from his holy hill. God gets the credit. Look as we continue in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So if we've seen so far that the first thing is that David heard lies about God. And then he comes and approaches that with telling the truth about God. The next step for David here is that he acts in faith towards God. That God has given him promises in his word, that he has shown himself faithful in his experience, in his testimony. And so David is going to do what someone who believes in God would do. In verse 5 and 6 he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for the sleep? Who gets the credit for waking up? It's all, it's all God. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I lay down and slept. Look at verse 1. I have many foes. Many foes are rising up against me. But then when we get to verse 5, we see a man who acts in faith. We act in faith towards God. We follow David's example because we recognize that actions demonstrate faith. 
It's why James says faith without works is dead. If there's no works, then what is your faith worth? Worth. Here, David is able to say, God, I trust you because you sustain me. I trust you. I lean on you because you are in control. And so often, isn't rest an evidence of faith? That God, I believe that you're going to take care of it. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying, and David's not pointing to laziness here, but he is saying, I will take your peace, God. I will take your rest, God, because I trust you, If it was all on David, he would have to stay awake through all the night to fight off his enemies, to to ward off those who are rising against him. David had reason to be scared here. You think about David didn't have deadbolts and ring doorbells. He had caves. I mean, he was hiding in caves. Yet he laid down and slept because he understood that his existence was fully dependent on God. His, his whole existence. I mean, it's not even his kingship here. It's not, will I get this position back? It's not, will my son love me again? It's, I can't even exist without God sustaining me. If my existence depends on God, then how will I not give God everything else in my life? How will I not trust him to provide in every other way? David wasn't surviving because God forgot about him and he was sneaking around. David was alive and well and he would regain the throne because God was in control. He was in the hand of God. So he did all he could and he trusted God. He stayed alive, he fled, and he trusted God to take care of it. When I read of David's faith here, I lay down and slept, it reminds me The first thing my mind goes to is Jesus on a boat sleeping. Matthew 8, that's in Matthew 8. If you've got your Bibles, flip over there. It's worth reading in context of the Psalms. Here, there was great misery and chaos in David's life. What would happen? And his response was, I can rest in God. I can trust God to provide. Well, we find a very similar situation in Matthew 8. Matthew 8, verse 23 Jesus got into a boat and his disciples followed him on the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. The boat was being swamped by the waves. Last week I got on a paddle boat and there was a little bit of water coming in on my side, not on my wife's side. I don't, I don't, the boat was, anyway, there was a little bit of water coming in on my side and I was like, we got to take it back. We got to take it back. It was fine. We ended up being all right. But a little bit of water got me crazy swamped. The boat was swamped. I mean, there was reason to fear here. And what was Jesus doing? He was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked, (laughs) rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? Mm. Don't you love, don't you love Jesus? (laughs) Don't you love God's word? What kind of man is this? They followed Jesus. There were scary things that happened because they followed Jesus. And here they were learning 
that instead of reacting in fear, they should react in faith. David was setting the example all those years before that when scary things come as he follows God, that he reacts in faith. Jesus is able to rebuke the winds and the seas. And we, as we follow him and live in faith, should have moments in our lives where we can do nothing but marvel at the wonder and beauty and majesty of Jesus. And so many times we act out of our own confidence, our confidence in ourselves. And we do our own thing so often, not following after Jesus, that there's so very rare the times that we get to say, look at what Jesus is doing. Look at what God is doing. Look how the Spirit is working. Because we don't like to give him those opportunities. Our fear says, I'll handle this. Our faith says, God, you can handle this. Fear keeps us from the greatest joys in life. Because following God takes courage. And when we're fearful, we don't do the courageous things. When we live in fear, we don't live in the rest and peace of following after God. And rest and peace is absolutely synonymous with courage here. That David lived in the courage of a confidence in God. And then he says this in verse 7. This is back to Psalm 3, verse 7. Psalm 3, verse 7. Uh, Arise, O Lord. Man, don't you, I love his confidence here. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Selah. Arise, O Lord. We pray with confidence in God. If we follow David's example, that's what we're going to do. David's example here was praying in confidence in God. He had already said, look, God, I don't believe the lies in you. I tell the truth about you. Then he rested in God. So he, he followed after God there. And now he's saying he acted in faith. And how does a person talk to God who acts in faith towards God? Well, they pray in confidence in God. Arise, O Lord. Exclamation point. <laughs> Arise, O Lord. There's some conviction here in how often I pray with exclamation points. How often do I talk to God in this way? Arise, O Lord. There's confidence. There's not an uncertainty whether God can arise. He knows he's talking to the living God, the God of the living. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Here again, he relies on on the word of God and the testimony of God. Of God, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. He's already seen this. God, I trust you to do what you have already done. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. There's humiliation there. You break the teeth of the wicked. That imagery is consequential for us. That we pray in confidence that God will do what is necessary and do it more than we could expect. He doesn't just beat the enemies. He humiliates them. God is able. So David prays with confidence. He's not uncertain of God's 
ability or power. He is absolutely convinced. Church, as we pray, we should pray like convinced people that your God hears you and that your God is able. And we pray within his will for his glory. So we pray hard. God, I trust you for this. God, do what is, do what glorifies you. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. What a powerful statement. Salvation isn't something that God discovers and finds or that he just gets a part of to give to you. Salvation belongs to him. It doesn't belong to anyone else. No one gets to decide about salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is such a hope-giving thing for us who need salvation from God. Good. Good. If you need salvation from God, that's good news because it belongs to him. He can give it freely. He, he in his grace can give it at no cost because he took the cost for himself. Salvation belongs to him. He prays for his blessing on his people. He prays with confidence in God. I think if you want to pray with confidence in God, maybe one of the best things you can do is go read Revelation. It's like a massive spoiler about how the world ends up. I mean, I know people get frustrated about spoilers on their TV shows, but like, if you want to know how the world ends, maybe a little more important, there it is, Revelation. And in the end, here it is, God wins. God wins overall. Salvation belongs to him. It's not uncertain. Revelation 19.1 echoes this psalm. After this, so these people had just seen, we're getting this, this revelation, this prophecy where uh, God had just destroyed the wicked in chapter 18. And now in Revelation 19.1, it says, after this, after you destroyed the wicked, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And I cannot read that with the justice it deserves. Jesus has just destroyed the wicked, this cosmic event where he is, Babylon is fell. And here he says, here the people, the great throng of people, the great multitude in heaven are crying out, hallelujah. I mean, it's greater than us. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I am convinced. I'm convinced, God, that this is yours. This whole world and everything in it is under your sovereign control, God. And I trust you. And I believe the harvest is plentiful. I believe the laborers are few. So, God, I want to go because I believe you. And God, I believe that you can save me, even though I've done crazy things that shouldn't, that don't deserve forgiveness. But God, I believe you. I'm convinced. Christians should be convinced. James 1 tells us that. James 1 says in the same vein, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When you read James 1, 5 through 8, what do you think David fits in there? Is he an unstable man, double-minded, uncertain, like a wave being tossed about? No. David is certain. He is convinced. He laid down and slept. He was so certain of the outcome, he could get some sleep. Church, I want you getting some sleep. I want you trusting in God so, so certainly so convinced, so absolutely that you can rest knowing he's in control. That you can be at peace because you know he's already brought the peace. David was able to have this type of faith and you are able to have this type of faith because God loves you. He loved you enough to send Jesus to save you. As we close out here in Psalm 3, I want to ask you whether you have the salvation that belongs to the Lord. Whether you've trusted in Jesus for salvation. Whether sin still reigns in your life. The reign of Jesus in your life is much sweeter than the reign of sin. If you're not sure, I think this is an important place to end here. David is sure. If you're not sure about whether you have the salvation that belongs to the Lord, then be sure today. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Jesus desires that you would know that you're saved. Will you confess with your mouth today? Will you believe in your heart today? As we sing and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, that we can be a people saved and confident and certain, that we can pray with confidence to our God. As we continue to sing, I'm going to be at the back, and I would love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. If you're uncertain, I'd love to talk with you. Will you pray with me now? Father, I I thank you that even though we have many foes, even though we hear many lies, and even though I know that in myself I might be my greatest foe and the greatest liar, God, I thank you that what is true is that you are a shield about me. You are my glory and that you are the lifter of my head. God, I know this because I trust your word that is proven true at every turn. God, I I trust this because you have proven it in my life at every turn. God, that I have the same confidence as David that when I cry aloud, you answer. God, I pray for the same type of rest that David has. I pray that for myself, and I pray that for this church, for this congregation, that we would lay down and sleep 
and that we would wake again, trusting in your sustaining power. God, help us not to be afraid, whether of the many thousands or the hard situations or the impossible circumstances. God, all around us, I pray that we would not be afraid of that. That instead we would come to you with the confidence of a child. God, you are a good father to us. So God, we ask that in our lives you would arise. (laughs) That you would do a new work in us. That there would be just a fresh flame in us to follow after you. And God, where we where we are troubled and torn down, God, I ask that you would save us from our own misery and our own despair. I pray that you would protect this congregation. God, I I pray that you would put your angels guard around them, that there would be protection, and that there would be, God, for this church and for your people, that there would be uh, defeating of enemies. God, and that it wouldn't just be for our comfort. God, I I pray against that. I pray for the defeat of enemies for your glory, that the world may come to know you, that people might experience your goodness and your glory, because we know that salvation belongs to you. So God, I pray blessing on your people. As we sing here, as we continue to fellowship together, God, as we celebrate what you've done, I pray your blessing on your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.